I'm convinced that the old growth model that is based on fossil fuels and pollution is out of date and it is out of touch with our planet. In the early stages of 2020, the European Union outlined the Green Deal, its long-term commitment to a sustainable future and an industrial strategy focused on creating a clean and circular economy. Among these policies, new EU climate laws have been implemented, mainstreaming sustainable imperatives across its vast jurisdiction with one major goal in mind, complete carbon neutrality by 2050. We are deeply aware of the need to achieve a more sustainable use of natural resources. While the seismic shift of EU policy gains speed, new frontiers have emerged for the energy sector as it stretches to meet its pressing environmental obligations alongside continuously rising energy demands. As Europe's new sustainability ambitions take centre stage, could hydrogen be both the opportunity and a major solution for the next generation of green energy infrastructure? Welcome to Racing Green, the podcast that explores the ideas, innovations, and influences making waves in the journey towards a sustainable future for our planet. In each episode, we'll investigate the new challenges, ingenious solutions, and the undiscovered opportunities that lie at the heart of our rapidly changing world. We aim to accelerate a new era founded on optimism and impactful collective responsibility. Today, we speak with Nina Boyer, partner, and Jeremy Griffin, a senior associate of energy resources, both at Herbert Smith Freehills, a global law firm assisting major supply chain clients with their transition into sustainable energy. As we investigate the opportunities of hydrogen as the next major energy source across Europe and beyond. But first, we talk with Dr. David Hart, an energy expert at E4 Tech, to get a glimpse of the fundamentals of hydrogen fuel technology and the opportunities for its application across the global energy supply chain. Welcome, David, and thanks so much for joining us here today on Racing Green. Do you want to give us a little bit of background about yourself? Thanks, Jeff. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Um, many thanks for the invitation. Uh, very exciting time for hydrogen. Very happy to talk about it. I've been working in the area for a very long time, about 25 years now. So I've seen lots of lots of things come and go. And uh, I've picked up quite a lot along the way. You're right. But there's always new stuff to learn. So that's uh, that's great. So my, my background is mechanical engineering. Uh, I did a PhD at Imperial College in hydrogen energy systems. Uh, I ran a research group there for a while. And now I'm a director of E4Tech. You're right. That's the name of the company. We're a specialist consulting company. We work in the energy transition, and a lot of what we're doing at the moment include, you know, includes batteries and low-carbon vehicles and biofuels and stuff, but a lot of it is hydrogen, a huge amount of interest at the moment, all sorts of companies, governments and, and others worldwide. So it's a, it's a really good time to be talking about it. Well, so there seems to be this new era for hydrogen. You know, is this the real era? I think it is. I think it is. You know, I'm, I'm naturally very cautious and uh, we've seen hype cycles in the past, as they call them, for hydrogen, where people have got very excited and there's been some reason like an oil crisis or something where people said, oh, no, no, now we need to shift to hydrogen. And always, you know, the oil crisis has gone away or the technology wasn't quite ready or something else happened. 
But this time, you know, the climate crisis is is really important. Uh, it's really real. It's urgent. Uh, there's a big drive for sustainability, exactly as you're saying. And a lot of technology development has happened over the past, you know, 25 years since I've been in the industry. And kind of things are all lined up now. So I see a lot of companies investing a lot of money in building capability and building projects. Governments see this as a way to decarbonize the economy and create jobs. So I think all of it put together suggests that this is real. So let's get down to the nuts and bolts of Hydrogen 101. I wonder if you could tell our audience, we've got people that are, some will be technical and many will be just really interested in sustainable issues. What is hydrogen? You know, at its very basic level. <laughs> Good question. And, and quite a hard one to answer in a, in a way. I mean, hydrogen is, is, is an element. It's a, it's, a, it's a gas. It's a fuel. Um, it's, it makes up an enormous amount of the, of the known universe. So, you know, 70, 80, 90% of the universe, depending on how you measure it, is actually made up of hydrogen molecules. And it's very versatile. So it, it loves to be joined together to other molecules. So we get uh, water, H2O, hydrogen and oxygen. Oil and gas and coal and things like that are all hydrocarbons. So they're carbon bonded to, to a hydrogen molecule. And it's an incredibly important part of, of everyday life. And it's not used much in energy at the moment. It's used in chemicals. It's used to make fertilizer. It's used to make uh, glass manufacture. It's used in all sorts of things. But we use very, very little of it for energy. And, and the, so the difference now is that we're taking something that we've had 100 or more years of experience with, and we're going to use it in a slightly different way. How do you capture it? You know, where is it? You split it is really, is really how you get it. So as I say, it loves being put in, in compounds with other molecules. So the way that we make most of our hydrogen for industrial processes today is to take natural gas and to, to break apart the carbon and hydrogen molecules in natural gas. So that's an efficient way of doing it. It does release carbon dioxide because of the carbon in, in the gas, uses some energy. It's a bit like, it's an analogous thing to, to electricity. You know, electricity we have to make, we have to run a, a turbine, or we have to run a generator, or we, we have to do something. And hydrogen is the same. We have to use some form of primary energy in order to get the hydrogen. The other way which is really, really taking off is what's called electrolysis. So you take water, usually soft water, sweet water, but you can do it with seawater, and you put an electric current through that, and that will split the hydrogen and oxygen molecules apart. And you can, you can use both of them, but usually you would only use the hydrogen. And if you do that with renewable electricity, then you have a completely clean process. And that's what's really exciting right now is we have so much renewable electricity capacity being built and we can use it to make hydrogen to do things that we can't do with electricity. It's a world of possibilities. So you take water, right, which is H2O. Exactly. You run a, an electric charge through it and you get hydrogen and you get oxygen and the oxygen just goes up into... Yeah, usually you just, you just let the oxygen escape. In some cases, you might capture it, you might use it for something, you know, maybe medical uses, something like that. But usually you just let the oxygen escape. Tell us about why hydrogen now? So there's always been some enthusiasts who, who've said hydrogen is a, is a great thing. It's a very elegant solution if you're a physicist or an engineer. It joins together in an interesting way, the electricity system and the transport system and other things. 
But those people have always been at a position where, you know, it's been too expensive, the technology hasn't been mature enough. And why hydrogen now is because, firstly, we have a real imperative to decarbonize. You know, we have to take carbon out of everything we do. And decarbonizing fossil fuels, for example, the hydrocarbons that I mentioned, by definition means taking the carbon out and leaving the hydrogen. So that means we're already interested in what some people call a hydrogen economy in the future. The other thing is that renewable electricity is fantastic. The prices are coming down. We're seeing loads and loads of solar and wind being rolled out in all sorts of places across the world. But there are some things we can't do with electricity. We need to make chemicals, we need to make fertilizer, we need to decarbonize steel making. And some things you can get part way with renewable electricity, but some things you can't. And for those mostly, not all, but mostly, you can use hydrogen. And so there's this kind of double effect, which is the technology's got better and cheaper, and there's this real demand saying we have to have hydrogen because we have to decarbonize. So that's, that's what's driven this interest. For a long time, you know, the enthusiasm was around things like cars, um, running hydrogen cars, fuel cell cars, as they're called, clean and efficient. They're, they're electric vehicles, basically. They're just like battery vehicles uh, with hydrogen in the tank. So they're quick to refuel and they go a long way. You know, you can get a range of five, six, seven hundred kilometers. Battery vehicles have, have really taken off in the last couple of years. So the, the, the hydrogen car is still a thing. You know, there, there are a lot on the road in California and in Korea and in places like that. But the emphasis has moved. And as I said, there are really, it's heavy industry. So it's about decarbonizing things which are not particularly sexy, but which are incredibly important and use a lot of energy. So mining industry, there are miners in Australia, in Chile, in South Africa, who are all looking at hydrogen as part of how to decarbonize their mining. There's the ammonia production industry, which is for fertilizer. Ammonia is basically nitrogen and hydrogen stuck together. If you can make the hydrogen clean, then you have a huge impact on decarbonization. Steel making, that's another one which is important. Uh, refining, sounds weird. So you're making oil or you're, you're refining oil, but you need a lot of hydrogen to do that because a lot of uh, oil needs kind of breaking apart and reconstructing, let's put it that way, to make petrol or diesel or, or other things. If you can get the hydrogen from renewables and put it into a refinery, actually you're helping reduce the carbon content of that refinery. So it's very complex the way hydrogen can play its role in decarbonizing, even in making petrochemicals more efficient. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, very, it's, it's very complex, but it's very versatile. So I'd love to take some of those industries, so the mining industry. So what is the application that you'd see hydrogen being used in, in say, mining? So an enormous amount of energy in mining goes into the, 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 the trucking of, of, of ore and minerals. Uh, they have a colossal requirement for diesel, typically. Depends a little bit on the type of mine. And a lot of mines have started putting in solar panels and renewables of other forms because they're often in hard-to-get-to places, out of the way. Very often, they're not connected to the grid, but they do probably have quite a lot of solar energy available. So that's fine. They can run some of the on-site equipment from that. But electric vehicles, you, you've seen the size of a mine truck, I guess. You, know, mm. you, you stand next to it and you don't even come to the top of the tyre. So those things are monstrous and they require a lot of energy and, and it's difficult to do that with batteries. So there are people working on 
hydrogen fuel cell mining trucks. So there are a few of those already in demonstration and, and also internal combustion engine. You can burn hydrogen in a modified diesel engine. So these mining trucks have huge engines in them. And by modifying those engines and running them on hydrogen, you can massively reduce emissions and also you massively reduce your diesel costs. <laughs> so, you know, miners aren't all altruistic. They're happy to try and reduce emissions if, if they get a benefit out of it. But if they get a, some more cash in their pockets, that's, that's a huge driver. No, I think for all of these things, you know, we have to do so much that there isn't a single answer. Even for cars, the, the heavier the car gets, the further you get towards big SUVs, the more likely it is to be hydrogen than, than, than a battery. So buses are a perfect example. There are buses running on the streets of London. They have been for the last 10 years, fuel cell buses uh, on, on a couple of the routes. There are a bunch of buses in Europe, um, two or 300 as, as far as I remember off the top of my head. China has been really ramping up its enthusiasm for, for hydrogen and it has also possibly even a thousand buses, certainly hundreds of buses. And one of the interesting things is one of the Chinese cities has actually announced that it's going to switch from battery buses to hydrogen buses. So not from diesel buses to, to battery buses, but from battery to hydrogen. I think that's partly due to range. So you go further in, in, a, battery, in a hydrogen bus than you do in a battery bus, possibly also to do with infrastructure because you need fewer fueling stations, charging stations than you do. Charging uh, 200 buses takes a lot of charging stations, a lot of power, and it, it can be done, relatively speaking, more easily with, with a hydrogen fueling station. Hydrogen, as I said, is, is a fuel gas, essentially, so very analogous to natural gas. And a lot of the UK is currently heated on natural gas, not just residential, but of course also office buildings and, and parts of industry. And there's been a very big government program in the UK looking at whether or not it's a sensible idea. So you know, testing the pipeline network, testing the boilers that, that would have to run on hydrogen, making new boilers, looking at the safety. You know, it's important to understand what the difference is between burning natural gas or burning gasoline and, and, and burning hydrogen, uh, how people feel about it. There isn't yet uh, any sort of final decision, but there's been a lot of positive progress and there have been companies now who have managed to build hydrogen boilers. You know, they could install that in your home. You would never know the difference. It would be something that hung on the wall or sat in the basement or did whatever it did, and it would produce heat just, just the way your current boiler does, except it would be using hydrogen and not natural gas. So yes, plenty of applications. That's a much bigger change because it requires a change in the pipeline infrastructure. It requires all sorts of, of checks and balances. So it all has to be done at once. And it has to be the government that says, we're going to do this. So there's a big policy question that comes alongside heat. We hear a lot about black, gray, blue, green. You know, are there any other colors? Can you explain the different colors of hydrogen and where it's heading? Uh, I think you missed pink, yellow, and turquoise. Oh, okay. But, uh, that one. It gets really, really uh, confusing. Really simplistically, there's grey or black or brown are, are more or less the same, and that means fossil hydrogen. That's hydrogen that's produced from coal or from natural gas. So there are carbon emissions associated with that. Then there's blue hydrogen, and blue hydrogen is produced from fossils, but there's carbon capture and storage attached to it. So you produce the carbon, but then you sequester it, you capture it. You probably don't get 100%. So it's better than brown or better than black but it's not as good as green. And green hydrogen is renewable. So 
best in class is hydrogen produced, as we were saying, from water, from electrolysis, using renewable electricity. That's definitely green. And there are possible other ways of doing it with kind of biofuels and wastes and things like that. So you can, you can gasify wood or you can produce it from other types of biomass. There's no international standard definition. So some of those, there's, there's a debate going on about how green they are. You know, we had a lot of debate about biofuels 10 years ago and food for fuel and, and all of these other things. So there's, there's still discussions going on. But the, the best of the best is renewable hydrogen, which, which is very clearly green and, and has as much, much lower impact than the other types. Is it quite clear that this is a clean product? It, it is. There's, there's always going to be some emissions in a process. So building a wind turbine, you know, there are some emissions associated with that. Moving it around, if, if you move the hydrogen in a diesel-powered truck, <laughs> of course there are emissions in that. So the product itself is pretty clean. And, and the nice thing is that there's no room for debate, really, because there's no carbon input at any point in the process. So there are some things where, as you lose efficiency, they become less green. Uh, in this case, it's slightly less efficient, but it's no less green. It's important to just reiterate that you know, hydrogen is part of an energy system. And, and, and the way we need to think about it is where does it work best? If you have renewable electricity, use renewable electricity. If you can reduce demand by increasing efficiency, do that. Don't throw hydrogen at a problem you can solve in another way. But there are things you can't do with those approaches. And so thinking about the energy system as a whole, where do you need storage? What's the best storage? How does this work in these conditions? How do, how do these things complement each other is really important. And I think that's something people tend to look at a single solution. They say, oh, you know, battery vehicles are better than fuel cell vehicles. Well, yes and no. But if you have a, a hydrogen hub, you may actually want to run hydrogen vehicles because you, you have some hydrogen available and you, you need to think about it in those terms. I'm very keen that we don't have this antagonistic approach to, <laughs> to the future and say, no, 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 this is the only solution. This is, you know, this is the one true God. We need to make sure that we're being very open to all of the possible things we need to do because we need to move so fast. I can't thank you enough for joining us today on Racing Green. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. It's been a real pleasure. We now jump across to Paris with global legal firm Herbert Smith Freehills to examine how the political and industrial developments across the European Union seem poised to lay the foundations for the future hydrogen economy. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Jeff. So how is HSF involved within the energy sector? So within the firm, energy is really a part of our DNA. We're a law firm, so obviously we have the sort of conventional practice groups, but we have a strategy that also structures our business around sector lines. And energy is one of the key sectors within the firm. We have something like 150 energy partners across the globe. We've been involved in the renewable energy sector since the 1990s. And as individual lawyers, I think what gets us excited, what gets us up for work in the morning is our passion for the industry and our ability to work really closely with all stakeholders in shaping the energy needs for the future. So we're quite aware of the EU Green Deal and its directive to neutralise carbon emissions by 2050. But I was wondering if you could unpack that for us. Tell us more about the deal and what the big picture is. 
So the European Green Deal is effectively the EU's action plan to boost the efficient use of resources by moving to a clean circular economy to restore biodiversity and, most importantly, cut pollution. It also sets out the policy parameters and the very loose frameworks around investment arrangements. At the EU level, they're looking to mobilise around 100 billion euros between now and 2027. We think of the European Green Deal as kind of a top-level policy arrangement. Following that, there is legislative provisions. So we have the European Climate Law, which is in the process of being put in place. And then at the member state level, we have each of the countries and member states looking to comply with their Paris Accord arrangements. Obviously, the Paris Accord, the goal is by 2050 to limit global warming to between 1.5 and 2 Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. The Paris Accord has got broad, broad approval and is kind of a kind of cornerstone for our societies, really, in terms of the fight against climate change. And we see even countries like China and, and India forging ahead to build renewable capacity to help drive down greenhouse gas emissions. We've got the sort of legislative frameworks and policy frameworks, but we've also seen amongst our clients a real drive um, to, to meet what many have phrased as the climate emergency. You know, we work with a range of players across the energy sector and been really impressed by the number of those that are really positively stepping up to communicate clear goals and the steps that they're going to take to move towards those goals. And it's really permeating all of our industries. I mean, even us as a law firm have gone out and said, look, we are going to be carbon neutral and these are the steps that we're going to take to achieve it. So there's been a real rapid change in terms of the way that society as a whole is tackling these issues. Has COVID had any sort of impact on the speed at which or, or any impact, you know, on the adoption of the Green Deal? Yeah, look, it's a really good question. Um, I think it's really difficult to tell whether there has been a fundamental shift or as we now start to move hopefully out of some of the COVID restrictions, whether people will pick up the old habits and get on their long distance flights um, or whether habits have changed for good. But we've really seen, I mean, look at last year, the impact on things like electric vehicle sales. I mean, mm. the move in electrification and renewables has been phenomenal. And when you look at a car industry, it's not my core sector, but sales largely depressed. And what is it, a 50% increase in electric vehicles? There are some real trends accelerating and which are definitely there for the long term. Even in the context of France, the hydrogen strategy was set out as part of its launching process post-COVID. So I think governments around the world, especially in the, in the European Union, are using COVID as a kind of turning point to say, let's use this momentum, let's try and shift our habits, let's try and shift to clean energy as quickly as we can, because now is an opportune time. Yeah, it's that phrase, build back better. So how significant is hydrogen in the grander scheme of the EU Green Deal? The Green Deal is all about decarbonisation of our economies and making sure that effectively, as much as we can, we will be looking to electrify and use renewable power to propel the decarbonisation story. However, there are limits to electrification and there are limits to what you can do with renewable electricity. So in the context of industrial processes where you have hydrogen that is grey and in other instances where electrification is simply not possible, the idea is that hydrogen is going to play a key role to decarbonise those kind of hard-to-electrify sectors. The EU has put together its hydrogen strategy 
where the EU has earmarked hydrogen as being incredibly integral to making sure our economies as a whole are decarbonized. Just four years from now, we want to have at least six gigawatts of renewable hydrogen electrolyzers installed in Europe. That is six times what is in place today. There's two elements. There's sort of the greening of the current grey hydrogen. And I saw some stats, I think, by the International Energy Agency saying that hydrogen produced from fossil fuels is responsible for 830 million tonnes of carbon emissions globally. So that's the equivalent of like UK and Indonesia combined. So we can make a really meaningful impact if the current hydrogen we're using is transitioned from grey to green. Mm -hmm. And then it's all about those sort of hard to green sectors where electrification just isn't going to provide the solution that we need. Talk a lot about this in sort of heavy transport, um, less about passenger mobility, although obviously there is work going on in that space as well. It's really about a very broad ecosystem. Um, so whether that's on the supply side, the demand side, also in terms of transportation, this idea that molecules are easier to transport than electrons. So it has really big potential to try and hit some of those hard to green sectors that we've grappled with so far. One stat that talks to how big people think the hydrogen industry is going to be is Goldman Sachs and others have, have estimated the global green hydrogen market could be worth around 10.7 trillion by 2050. So I mean, that's a, that's a big figure. Wow, this is, this is going to have a staggering impact on our economies. So looking at specific EU countries, are there any kind of hotspots or specific governments that are driving this change? Um, I'd be surprised if it was uniform. I mean, I think that's, that's right. There has been different levels of uptake and different trends across the European Union. We see the traditional economic powerhouses of the European Union really being at the forefront here. So for example, Germany, France, um, and Spain, they have all developed their hydrogen strategies on green hydrogen. The idea being that governments will be looking to invest and support electrolyzer production across those regions. On the other side, we see countries like the UK, which really focused on blue hydrogen and the idea that carbon capture and storage is going to play a key role. So that is a headache that's going to appear in some senses for the EU at the kind of EU commission level in respect of which route are they going to go down and how are they going to maintain impartiality between green and blue? Yeah, I think the other country we'd add onto that perhaps is the Netherlands as well. But I think different countries taking a different approach, obviously one key parameter is your access to cheap and affordable renewable energy because you're not going to get to that green hydrogen unless you can have your access to renewables. And you know, we've made huge leaps and bounds in terms of the renewable sector. The other point that I perhaps draw out as well is just in terms of individual jurisdictions and how they are approaching this, some looking at more on a domestic market basis, so building up their own electrolyzer capacity. Other countries looking more internationally, um, I think Germany's earmarked about two billion for international projects. Italy as well, looking at how they can leverage relationships with North Africa. We've cited some examples in Europe, but I mean, ultimately, this is a truly global game. We've heard people liken this to the sort of space race in the 60s and 70s. Regions and jurisdictions are really trying to get onto the front foot on this, and Europe really keen to play a part. Mm. 
Clearly, there are some unique benefits of hydrogen. Has there ever been a big push towards hydrogen before? There has. The last real push for hydrogen came around the early 2000s, and that that was really kind of twofold. There was a push in respect of hydrogen vehicles, and there was the race in relation to whether hydrogen fuel cells or electric vehicles would take market share. Clearly, in that instance, um, electric vehicles have won out. Generally speaking, and we're not technical experts or scientists, but the scientific literature really points to the fact that electric vehicles and light travel or, or short travel, it's much more efficient to use electric vehicles rather than fuel cells. And hydrogen fuel cells are more adapted to long-range travel where it's difficult to be able to recharge. And then the second piece would be the decarbonisation push that happened between 2005 and 2010 to 15, where you had BP and other big industrial players like Rio Tinto as well, looking at decarbonisation strategies and carbon capture and storage mechanics and hydrogen as well, really greening their, their operations. However, that didn't really take off. So there seems to be a lot of excitement around hydrogen at the moment. What has changed this time around? What's looking different this time around? You know, why all this excitement? Why is it every time we open up our newspapers, there's another hydrogen story or a new potential application? Is that this global recognition that in order to meet the climate change imperatives, the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, we have to tackle all areas of today's society. We have to tackle those hard to green sectors. There have been some really positive steps in the renewable sector. We've seen the price of renewable electricity really come down, and that's been through a range of support measures, investment, technology improvements. And so we can take those models and look to apply them to the hydrogen sector. The price difference is significant and has for many years really been a barrier to really investing and creating the sort of scale that we need today to bring those costs down. In terms of the electrolyzed market, there needs to be this proving of technology, the scaling up of the industry, but also the end-demand use. And there needs to be both carrot and stick to encourage people to move towards this new green economy. And when we talk about carrots and sticks, you know, it's about things like carbon taxes, but also around government providing the necessary investment framework and certainty to underpin the massive investment that's needed in this sector. It really looks like governments are going there. We have these strategies in place. It looks like they will be taking those learnings and introducing funding models and investment strategies and investment support for hydrogen projects. So we really do think that this time around, it is, it's quite different. there'll be a lot of change, you know, within the next decade. What can we expect to see in terms of decarbonisation, clean energy across the EU, let's say in, this, in the next 10 years? The big picture is going to be that industries and kind of proliferation of renewables is going to continue. And we're going to see renewable energy takeover. It's already cheap, and it's going to get cheaper and become more and more relevant and important. Is a hydrogen strategy absolutely essential and an essential ingredient to the whole big picture? There is a tension between electrification and the hydrogen story, but that is not an incompatible tension. I mean, there is, you know, look at things like mobility in the broader sense, you know, air travel, 
freight, shipping. There are areas that need to green and the right solution for that is hydrogen. Right. So it absolutely needs to be part of the story. One of the other regions that Jeremy and I do a lot of work is in Africa. Electrification is a very different story when you're talking about the situation in Europe than when you're talking about the situation in certain other jurisdictions. And so talking about the difference between sort of blue and green hydrogen, is there a way that we can continue to use our natural gas resources and combine that with carbon capture? But ultimately, when we're looking at greenhouse gas emissions, that is a global issue. And hydrogen very much has its role to play in that economy. Now, there'll be people challenging whether hydrogen should be competing in certain sectors, saying that we've done so well on electric vehicles. Why on earth would we be, as governments, incentivizing further investment into hydrogen when we have a really good solution through renewables? One of the issues with hydrogen, you know, we talk about X to X, you know, effectively taking excess capacity from renewables the issues with storage of that, so effectively using excess capacity from renewables, producing hydrogen, and then effectively having that hydrogen as a feedstock to produce renewables in the future. Now, that's a great idea, but financially, when you look at sort of the energy intensity of sort of using renewables to then produce hydrogen, to then use that hydrogen again to produce power, there's a lot of opportunities out there. And what these various pilot projects that are going on today are going to be really useful in is setting what are the right parameters, where can it be used, and at what cost? Because at the end of the day, there isn't a limitless fund to pay this. It's going to be you and I, the consumers, the listeners, that are going to be funding this initial investment into the hydrogen economy. And so the various usages, the technology will need to be proven up, scaled up on a massive scale, so that we can bring those costs down. But we absolutely feel, and look, it's not just us, it's clients across a whole range of sectors that are really actively looking at hydrogen now, teaming up, creating joint ventures to really explore the opportunities. What are the other big areas that you think the government should be making investment in related to the carbon economy? You know, a lot of these policies that we've seen are around driving supply. How are we going to generate more of this green hydrogen? How are we going to produce it? And we will need to see more policies to support the demand side. These are industries that operate on tight margins and they cannot be expected alone to bear the cost of green hydrogen, particularly at this kind of nascent stage of the industry. We do need some significant government support because there is always that first mover early technology disadvantage. Um, you don't want to be the company that makes all the investment, proves up the technology, and then you're making a huge loss and others come in and are able to sort of benefit from that. There needs to be some support really to get these projects off the ground. And we've seen that both across Europe, that commitment to making funding available and also on individual country levels also. Let's, let's fast forward 30 years, you know, are we really going to hit these targets? Will the human race achieve this goal by 2050? It's a really difficult, difficult question. I think the impetus and the momentum we have, especially in Europe and in Australia and other jurisdictions, it seems feasible. And it seems that the 2050 goals of carbon neutrality across the EU, especially, can be met. There is 
a separate question around getting everyone on the same page and making sure that all countries around the world sign up to this. And this touches on a bigger problem around carbon leakage. And if we have a carbon neutrality goals and carbon tax schemes in the EU, this might just shift carbon intensive industries offshore. And the way that people will deal with that, the governments will deal with that, is by a carbon border adjustment tax. But assuming that the current momentum is fulfilled, I'm hopeful that by 2050, Paris Accord goals can be met, but it requires a lot of cash, a lot of motivation, and it requires industries and, and our communities to shift. We're seeing this, so I'm optimistic. And it's, a, it's an absolute imperative. This is where we've set a path and this is where we need to head. And the momentum, and you talked about, you know, has the impact of COVID played into this? I mean, obviously, this energy transition story predates COVID, but the momentum, the drive, and the urgency that we're seeing today, Jeremy and I, we're both energy lawyers across the broad sense of the term. And the drive and investment that we've seen within our clients to really tackle climate change has been extraordinary. My hope is that policymakers, governments will keep to the timetables, develop the frameworks and the regulatory certainty, the support mechanisms, so that we can really harness and build on the momentum that we have today. And if we can do that and roll out on a truly sort of global scale, then yes. And hydrogen will play a big part because it is the only solution for certain sectors of our economy. Very well said there. It seems as though every one, governments, companies, everyone's jumped on the bandwagon that this is a climate emergency. Is there something else going on? Is there, are there other factors behind all this? Or is it just a human sort of recognition all in an instant? What's different now? Uh, and what's going to make it different? You know, that this momentum is going to continue and that we do see the climate emergency as an emergency. So, Jeff, I think I'd probably flag a few points. Jeremy might have others. I mean, one is the success story around renewables. There were skeptics around the ability for renewables to be cost competitive, and we've seen the positive story there. So I think that's part of the excitement around hydrogen in the sense that we can tackle a brave new world and produce positive results. I think another factor not linked to the Paris Agreement or climate change is just energy security more broadly. You know, this was something that's always important in terms of national strategies is energy security. And when you look at countries like Japan, they look at hydrogen and say, well, this might reduce my dependency on certain jurisdictions. So, you know, they're looking at hydrogen supply from Australia. So it plays into a sort of broader political um, aspirations, I guess, around energy security. There's the technology piece as well, right? I was going to ask about that. Yeah, there's been a revolution in technology and we need to feed all those servers Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. You know, part of the French um, strategy is around innovation and technology because it's important to be at the forefront. It's no longer just about being an industrial leader. It's about being at the forefront of uh, advances in innovation and technology. And this has a really good role to play. You know, we've seen different regions sort of competing for, let's say, you know, take something like batteries. 
if this is only happening and the investment out in China, well, what does that mean in the future? And Europe's done a good job. US is also addressing this. And I think people are saying, well, for some technologies, maybe we were a bit behind or we're paying catch up. Well, here's an opportunity to get in at the ground floor. And I guess it's which person's elevator goes up the quickest. Um, And look, it might not be a straightforward who runs up the ladder. It might be sort of like a jungle gym with monkey bars and we're all sort of trying different things and see which gets us to the end game. But there's the experience from other sectors and this desire not to be left behind. We've hit a bit of a critical mass point, both at a kind of a societal and human level. I think now there is a large societal pressure to address the issue, which 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't really there, but now, now it is. It's undeniable. You know, people want to address greenhouse gas emissions. People want to address the climate emergency. And governments are listening. And governments are now in a position where they need to act. Yeah, it's absolutely mainstream. I mean, I have a 14-year-old and an 11-year-old at home. And this is a topic of conversation. I think we also have to remember, Jeremy and I are based here in Paris, and we'll remember the sort of gilets jaunes movement of a few years back. And it's about creating the right policies. I mean, when we saw the trigger for the gilets jaunes movement effectively increasing the price at the pump for individual consumers who already had things pretty tough, didn't have the spending power that they might once like, people aren't going to just accept anything and bear the cost of it. We all realise and completely buy into this need to clean our economies for our future generations. But it's very important that it's done in the correct way. And that's why I talk about sort of this further building out of government policies to really support investment in the right types of technology. And this race to, to be sustainable, the, the climate emergency, etc. How important have been the voices? It you know, began with, say, the David Attenboroughs and then the Greta Thunbergs and increasingly now the Bill Gateses of the world. You know, how important are those voices uh, in terms of influencing policy and um, industry? There needs to be voices that can talk to every aspect of our community. And there is that broad debate, which I think has really helped move things forward. Let's be honest, my, I started off predominantly working in upstream oil and gas and lucky to be working at a firm that has been at the forefront of the renewables industry. You know, we've had a dedicated energy team for decades, been working on renewables since the early 1990s. And it's about being able to have access, you know, to those different viewpoints that you mentioned in a way that resonates with the broadest audience. Governments do have to do their job and they have to lead the direction, as we've seen being done throughout Europe. And knowing that you have the broader social support behind those goals makes it easier for governments to continue to be moving in the right direction. We can't ignore the economics behind it. And that's where this massive deployment of capital will be needed. There will need to be government support to avoid the sort of perils of being the sort of first mover disadvantage and to really prove up the technology, the uses, create this broad ecosystem. But it's a really exciting time and we 
we feel it and it's at a time where I think life can be pretty difficult, right? We've all gone through 12 months of not living the lives that we would have wanted. It's a great time to be actually thinking about the future world we want to build. That's all for this episode of Racing Green. Thanks for joining us. Racing Green is produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Chris Bristow, and Georgina McGiven in collaboration with the Camden Clean Air Initiative. It was recorded at Serendipity Studios, Camden, North London, with music and sound design by Chris Bristow. 